Well, good morning, everyone. Welcome to, uh, if you're a first-time guest, welcome to Riverwood. Really, really glad you're here. Hope Overflow, thank you guys so much. That was fantastic. That was great. Really, really glad to have you guys with us, and I hope I'm not messing anything up by setting this stuff down, because I really don't want to swing my arms and knock anything over like that right there. <laughs> that was perfect timing. Uh, Anyway, uh, if you are a first-time guest, my name is Aaron, uh, teaching pastor for Riverwood, and uh, we are uh, in the book of Mark, uh, and two weeks ago, the uh, Super Bowl took place. Uh, my Kansas City Chief-loving son, who's sitting over there in his uh, Chiefs uh, sweatshirt, is still mourning the Chiefs lost to the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. The quarterback for the Buccaneers was Tom Brady. Now, some of you might know that name if you're not a football fan, because Tom Brady was the quarterback for the New England Patriots for 20 seasons. Out of those 20 seasons, he led the Patriots to the Super Bowl nine times. All right, so almost every other season, he led the Patriots all the way to the Super Bowl. All right? And of those nine appearances, they won six of them. So when he showed up with the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, at the age of 43, he's in his 10th Super Bowl, most anyone has ever appeared in the Super Bowl, and then he wins, and it's his seventh win. The closest to Tom Brady are the New England Patriots and the Pittsburgh Steelers, franchises that have six wins. And he as an individual has seven. This is what has led many people the last couple of weeks to call Tom Brady the GOAT, the greatest of all time. Now, I'm not here to debate whether he really is or not, all right? Some of you may have strong appearance that he is. Some of you may really not like Tom Brady because of inflate gate and cell phone scandals and all sorts of other things having to do with Tom Brady. Or you could be like my son who thinks Patrick Mahomes is the GOAT. Maybe you're an old timer and you think it's like Bart Starr or Terry Bradshaw or Joe Montana. You know, like you, you, you could get into that debate. I'm not here to debate whether he is or not. What I want to propose is this crazy scenario where Tom Brady is graduating from the University of Michigan. By the way, he was drafted in the seventh round, the 199th pick in the draft. He's considered the greatest steal out of the draft. Anyway, let's pretend he graduates from the University of Michigan. This would be like, what, 21 years ago now? And he announces that he is going to skip the NFL because he's already the greatest. Like, he knows he's the GOAT. He even says, if I went on to play in the NFL, I would win seven Super Bowls. I mean, no one else has even won like more than four. He's got, I'm going to win seven Super Bowls. I'm going to appear in 10 of them. I'm going to lead my team pretty much every other year to the Super Bowl. I'm the greatest there ever was. And so I'm going to take my greatness and go into coaching. People would look at Tom and say, okay, first of all, you're a little cocky. You weren't that great in college. You're a seventh round pick. You're not the GOAT. And if you really are the GOAT, you need to step onto the field and prove it. The GOAT does not just claim it and then go into coaching. The GOAT has to go on the field and prove it. And they would just look at Tom and say, you're crazy. Well, today, and forgive me for this Jesus juke, we're going to hear from the true GOAT, the greatest of all time, Jesus. But he's going to say something even crazier than if Tom Brady had announced he was skipping the NFL and going straight into coaching as the GOAT. You see, the Jewish people of Jesus' day had been longing for the coming of the Messiah. This Messiah had been prophesied all through the Old Testament, what they just knew as their Hebrew scriptures. And as they studied it, they got an idea of what this Messiah would look like. And some of Jesus' disciples saw the things that Jesus did, they heard the things that Jesus taught, 
And they knew this is the Messiah. This is the Christ. This is the one God said would come. And it is at that very moment when they identify Jesus as the Messiah, Jesus says something absolutely crazy. Even crazier than the GOAT quarterback saying he's going to skip playing and he's just going to go straight into coaching. To see this crazy thing, I invite you to open your book to the, your Bible to the book of Mark. Uh, if you are a first-time guest with us, uh, we open up the scriptures every single week. At Riverwood, we don't care if that's a digital Bible or a paper Bible. We just want you to have one. Now, if you don't have one, don't worry about it. We're going to put the scripture up on the screen. We want everyone to be able to read along and follow along and study this with us. But I just encourage you, next time you come back to Riverwood, bring a Bible with you. And now, that, if that means you've got to download a digital one to your phone, feel free. If you need a paper copy, go to Walmart. Uh, if you just can't afford one, we've got some high-quality Bibles here. We will just give you one. Uh, if you're online and you want a paper Bible, just send us your, your address. We'll mail you one or we'll just drop it by your house. We want you to have a Bible because we believe that the more you open it up here on Sundays, the easier it is to open it up on Monday. We want you in this thing every single day. We believe that what our world needs are people who will love like Jesus loved and live like Jesus lived. And what better way to get to know who Jesus was than to get into the scriptures, look at his life, see how he loved people, how he lived, and let that begin to impact you as you go to be a blessing. And today we're going to be in Mark chapter 8. We're going to be starting at verse 27. So as we get ready to read, let me pray. Heavenly Father, we now come to your holy word. Uh, these scriptures have impacted generations. And so we pray that it would impact us now. But God, we also recognize that these words have been here long before any of us were even alive. And these words will probably continue even after we have gone. And so God, I pray that today you would help us to not come to the scriptures trying to fit it into our bias, but instead that we would allow you to change us to fit what you say. Because some of what we're going to hear today, God, is hard. Some of us, we're not going to want to wrestle with these things. And so God, I just pray that through the power of your Holy Spirit, you accomplish in the hearts and minds of those who are in person, who are online, or who are listening to the podcast later in the week, and that you would take these next few moments and make them holy, and you would impact them so that they can become more like your son, Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. All right. Uh, we've been, uh, let, you know, let's go ahead and read and then we'll, we'll talk about that. Uh, Mark 8, start in verse 27. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, oh, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. Now, if you are new to Riverwood, we have been in the book of Mark now for a year. Now, some of you are thinking that we must only go like three verses at a time, but we actually uh, took a break in the summer, came back to it in the fall. We took another three-month break over this, this winter, and we've only been back in the book of Mark uh, for what, the last, I think, three, four weeks. But from the very beginning, we have seen Mark making the case that Jesus is the king. It began in chapter 1 when Mark let us hear from Jesus from the very first time, and we heard Jesus teach, repent and believe, for the kingdom of God is at hand. And when we looked at that little sermon of Jesus, we saw that Jesus is the king of the kingdom. And then uh, Mark is basically helping us begin to see that because he's the king, he has the authority, he has the wisdom, he has the power. And so we've seen Jesus have authority over demons. We've seen him have authority over death. He raised a little girl from the dead. We've seen him exercise power 
I mean, he's healed all sorts of people. He's uh, caused storms to stop. He, he fed 5,000 people, and then last week we saw 4,000 people. I mean, he's done all these amazing miracles. And then you throw on the wisdom that he's displayed through his teaching, teachings about sin, about God, about life. There's no one like Jesus. And, and so it shouldn't be a surprise to see the conversation Jesus has with his disciples go like this. They're on their way to Caesarea Philippi. I, I can't imagine, you know, when they make these long journeys by foot, all, all the conversation they would have had. And so as they're walking along, Jesus just simply asks, so guys, who, who do people say that I am? Well, they say, well, some of them, some of them think you, you're your cousin John the Baptist reincarnated. We, we saw that in chapter six when Herod had John beheaded. And then later Herod started hearing about Jesus. And he thought, oh no, it's John the Baptist come back. Other, other people said that it was Elijah. The, the book of Malachi prophesies that Elijah the prophet would appear before the coming of the Messiah. Well, they look at some of the miracles that Jesus did, and they're thinking like, wow, that's kind of like what Elijah did in his, in his ministry. Maybe this is like the predecessor to the Messiah. Other people said that, nah, he's, he's like one of the prophets, you know, from, from back, you know, like Isaiah, Jeremiah, Daniel. Like, he's one of like those people. But then Jesus says, yeah, but that's what they say. What, what do you guys say? And without hesitation, Peter says, you are the Christ. The word Christ means anointed one. When a king was coronated, he would be anointed with oil. So when the Jews would talk about this coming Messiah and they would call him the Christ, the anointed one, that was language saying this is a king. This is a king who is going to be the king of kings, like the king to end all kings. This is a divine king who's going to come and set all things right. There will be no one like him because he is the anointed one. And Jesus didn't correct Peter. He accepts the title. He doesn't go, well, okay, you're, you're off a little. Thanks, that's it's flattering. No, he accepts the title. But he doesn't say, great, now go tell everyone. In fact, he tells them, okay, don't say anything yet. All right, now, he does eventually tell them to go and, and preach the gospel. I mean, it, in our, during our 21 days of prayer, we were in the Great Commission, Matthew 28, 18 through 20. We saw Jesus very clearly say, go, make disciples, preaching the gospel. Basically, go and tell them, Jesus is here, Jesus is king. But not yet. Now's not the time. Because Jesus is still trying to help these guys figure out exactly what the Christ does. But I want you to realize what a cool moment that would have been for Peter. The teacher asked a pop quiz question, and Peter got it right. So, I mean, Peter's probably feeling pretty good. I mean, like, he knows, but, but he, he doesn't know. I mean, he thinks he knows, but when he said, the Christ, he had a completely different person in mind. And Jesus begins to help them learn the definition of the Christ, the anointed one. Continue on, verse uh, 31. And he, Jesus, began to teach them that the Son of Man, by the way, the Son of Man, this was Jesus' uh, chosen title for himself. It comes from the book of Daniel. It was a messianic title, and Jesus used that one the most for himself. So he says, he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed, and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. I, I love the, that Mark throws that in, that he said it plainly. Like, he didn't hesitate. 
he didn't kind of waffle. He didn't hem and haw. He didn't stutter. He didn't say, uh, um, like I do all the time. Like he states it. I am the Christ and I must suffer. But notice, he did not say, I will suffer. He said, I must. Why must he suffer? Uh, I recently bought a lamp. It arrived in the mail, and I opened it up, and the glass enclosure that was supposed to go around the bulb was completely shattered. So I had to immediately package it up and, and send it back. But it got me thinking of a little scenario. I want you to imagine that I've come over to your house or for the Hope Overflow, I've come to your dorm room, and uh, let's just say I've got a rubber ball. And in a very foolish moment, I'm trying to be silly, I throw it right there in your room. And maybe I'm playing with your kid, maybe I'm playing with your dog, maybe I'm just being silly, and I just chuck this little rubber ball, it bounces off the wall and it hits your lamp. Your lamp crashes to the floor and just shatters. Now, I'm, I'm just gonna let you know in that moment, I feel really bad. All right, so I'm immediately going to offer to replace the lamp for you. But because you're a nice person, you're going to say, no, Aaron, don't, don't worry about it. It was an accident. You didn't mean to break my lamp. Don't, don't worry about it. It's not a big deal. It's just a lamp. And I'm going to say, no, 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 I, I, I need to replace it. Like, you need that lamp. I mean, you got finals do you have to do. you got to study. You know, like, you need this in your room. I want you to read a book. I'm going to buy you a lamp. And you're saying, no, 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 Aaron. And we get in this kind argument. One of us is going to win. And whichever of us wins this argument we're the one who suffers. Because we're gonna have to put out the $50 or the $100. If, if I pay it, I'm the one who suffers. I deserve it, but you, out of the kindness of your heart, you're like, nah, 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 you're, you're a pastor, you're poor, you don't have to do it, I, I'll do it. <laughs> one of us will suffer. When, when Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden, they did more than break God's lamp. They broke creation. They, they broke the image of God that was in them. And in that moment, their relationship God, with God was broken. And the cost to repair it was not $50 or $100. wasn't even a million dollars or a billion dollars. The cost was life. But you see, in the moment that they sinned, they died spiritually. That image of God within them that gave them true life, it was broken and so now they're separated from God. And now if they pay the full cost and die physically, they're now eternally separated from God. But God loved humanity. He did not create them, put his image in them, just to have them separated from him for eternity. God wants humans in relationship with him. He is their life. And so he comes to restore them. And the path to do that was God would pay the cost. That is why Jesus took on human flesh, came down, lived a sinless life, meaning he didn't break anything of God's, but he went to the cross as if he had broken everything. God absorbed the cost so that we could be forgiven. And by doing so, it allows us to come back into relationship with him because he's repairing the image of God within us so that now we could go and love like Jesus loved and live like Jesus lived. That is why Jesus told his disciples that the Son of Man must suffer. That's his definition. Jesus' definition of greatness is not a king who sits on a throne demanding the people serve him. His definition of greatness is a king who comes to give his life and to serve the people so that they could come back into relationship with their God. But that's not the definition Peter had. Peter and his disciples have a completely different definition. We see it in the very next part. Verse 32, pick it up in the second half. 
And Peter took Jesus aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, Jesus rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Can you imagine the audacity of Peter? To, to grab Jesus by the arm, pull him aside. I mean, this is the guy who stood up in a boat and with a word calmed the wind and the waves. And yet Peter's like, no, no, Jesus, come here. I mean, the audacity. But Peter knows. I mean, Peter just answered the pop quiz question correct. He knows Jesus is the Christ, and he knows what the Christ should look like. The Christ, the Messiah, is going to come down and make all things right. And what is right is overthrowing the Roman Empire, reestablishing Israel as a sovereign nation, and Jesus gets to sit on the throne. And I, Peter, and the rest of the disciples get to be his high court, his cabinet, his ministry officials. It's going to be awesome and great. So no, Jesus, you are not going to die. You're going to be the one doing the killing. We're going to overthrow those Romans, and we're going to get it right. And that's when Jesus looks behind him and sees all the disciples looking over. They're, they're, they're over here in the conversation. And in this teaching moment, with his eyes full of love, he looks at Peter and says, get behind me, Satan. Okay, what is up with that? I, seriously, if you start calling your friend Satan, I, the friendship's probably not going to go very far. Okay, just a tip. Well, first of all, who is Satan? Now, I, I recognize that in national polls, when, when you poll people, do you believe there is a God? It's something like 80, 90% of, of Americans will say, yeah, there's a God. But if you say, do you believe there is a Satan? It's much lower. It's like 50, 60%. We, we don't like this idea of Satan. I, I'm just going to let you know that I'm coming from a position where I do believe Satan is a true spiritual being. Because Jesus talks about Satan as though he's a true spiritual being. And if Jesus can die and rise again three days later, I'm going to go with him. All right? So you may disagree with me, and that's okay. But I just want you to know, I do believe he's a real spiritual person. But in this moment, Jesus is not saying, Peter, you've now become Satan. He's saying, you are, you are basically playing the role. You're trying to go along with what Satan would want. Because Satan is anti-God. I mean, if, if God says, paint the wall white... Satan's going to try and splatter it black. If God says go left, Satan's going to whisper go right. And if God creates life, Satan is going to try to destroy it. Satan is against God's will, against God's plan. And so when Peter pulls Jesus aside and says, no, you're not going to die, he's actually being against the plan of God that was instituted at the very beginning. So that's why Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. If you're really on the path with God and for his plan, you would not say that. Now, in Peter's defense, later in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 2, we see Peter stand up, preach to a whole crowd, and overnight through Peter's preaching, the church goes from 120 people roughly to over 3,000. Right? It goes from a country church to a mega church like that. Right? So Peter gets on board. He gets in line with God's plan. But in this one moment... He's not because he's got the wrong definition of the Christ. So Jesus, to get his attention, says, get behind me, Satan. Why get behind me? In other words, get out of my way. I know where I'm going. I know where the road leads. And the road leads to Jerusalem where I will be falsely arrested, falsely tried, and I will be killed upon a cross 
for your sins. This is the plan. I must suffer and die. But this seems crazy to Peter and his disciples. In fact, if you go over to a chapter 9, uh, skip if, if your Bibles are still open there. Go to uh, Matthew, uh, Mark 9, verse 30. We, we see this continuing. It says that they went on from there and passed through Galilee. Galilee was kind of the region where Jesus grew up. It had Nazareth and Capernaum, some of the cities that he uh, grew up in and spent time in. They passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know. All right, so Jesus is trying to be there secretly. Why? For he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. This sounds like crazy talk. I mean, this king that they believe is the Christ, the anointed one, is saying he's going to be killed, but three days later rise again from the dead. What in the world does this mean? Now, if you're a follower of Jesus, you're on this side of the cross. You can look back in the Hebrew Scriptures and you can see things like Isaiah 53 or Psalm 22, which talk about the Messiah being rejected, being despised, being scorned, being whipped and beaten and eventually killed. And you can look at that and say, wow, that is a prophecy about Jesus. But for Peter and his disciples, I mean, the other disciples, they went through some of the Jewish schools and they heard things about the Messiah like from Isaiah 61 or from Psalm 2, where it talks about all the mighty things that this anointed one would do. And when they were with Jesus, they saw all these amazing things he did. It lined up with those passages. So in their mind, they're thinking of this mighty warrior who's going to come and make things right. So to have this mighty warrior saying, I'm going to get killed, but three days later, rise again from the dead, it just doesn't fit. And so they're scared to say anything. It's just not in, in, in line with their theology. And besides, if they speak up, are they just going to get called Satan? So they stay quiet. They're confused. This seems crazy. And then Jesus does something even crazier. Flip back there to Mark 8. Pick it up at verse 34. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, all right, pause for a second. You realize what he's just done. Instead of just teaching his 12 disciples, he's like, hey, everyone, come here for a second. Come here. I, 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 want, you, I want you to hear this. All right, here's what I want you to hear. If anyone would come after me, in other words, if you want to be my disciple, if you want to be my follower, right? And remember, Jesus has done all these miracles. He's teaching like no one else. He's fed the 5,000. People are hoping to get some food from him. All these people are starting to come and think, this guy's the one. He's the Christ, the anointed one. He's going to set everything right. Yeah, we want to follow this guy. If we're close to him now, when he comes into power in Israel and sets a sovereign nation, we get to be in his inner court. So yeah, we want to be here. We want to follow him. It says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For, for what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And he said to them, Truly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death 
until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Jesus just got done telling his disciples, I am the Christ, and the Christ must suffer and die. But suddenly he says, and if you want to follow me, you have to be like me. You also will have to suffer and metaphorically die. Now, you are not Christ, and so there's no need for you to go to a cross. You cannot die for anyone else's sins. Only he could. But you, in a sense, need to metaphorically take up your cross. Now, when Jesus talks in this passage about life, I think Mark picked a very specific Greek word. Uh, the best way to say this word is, is psyche. It's where we get our word psychology. Psyche, it could be translated as life, meaning like physical life, but it often had a much deeper meaning. It meant the type of life of who you were down in the core of yourself. You hear Jesus in there a couple of times use the word soul. In other words, what Jesus is talking about here is your identity. Where do you find your life? In our culture, many people find their life in their family. I, I can tell you I'm a husband, uh, a, a father. Other people, they, they find their identity in their job. So for me, that would mean I'm a pastor. Other people, they, they find it in like their hobbies. Uh, I exercise, I mean, I swim for exercise. So you could say I'm a swimmer. Or I really enjoy baseball and football and wrestling. And so you could say I'm a, a sports fan. Uh, all of us try to find our identity in these various things. And, and most of them, Really, really good. But what happens is we take these good things and we make them ultimate things. And what Jesus is warning us is that is a bad thing because those things can all change. And so in a moment of tragedy, I could lose my wife and my children. So I would no longer be a husband and a dad. It, our elder team could decide that they don't like what I'm wearing today. And so they institute a coup and decide Aaron's out. By the way, they would never do that. Uh, but if suddenly I'm out, I'm no longer a pastor. Uh, last night, we had the uh, Iowa High School wrestling uh, on the TV. Uh, Waverly Shell Rock had five guys in the finals, ended up, by the way, uh, won the uh, state t uh, title uh, as, a, as a team. So we're watching it, and so my youngest son decides, Dad, let's wrestle. So we're over there on the floor wrestling around, and as we're wrestling, all of a sudden I'm like, whoa, dude, okay, stop. Uh, my shoulder just popped. Right, let's, let's just say that my shoulder got injured in such a way I, I could no longer swim. So no, I'm no longer a swimmer. Or, or let's say that in a horrible moment, I, I suddenly go blind. I would no longer be able to watch baseball or football or, or wrestling. And so who I am as an uh, avid sports fan is, is suddenly taken away. If I build my life on those things, if those things are my identity and they get taken from me, now who am I? It would lead me into an identity crisis. And that's what Jesus is warning. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world, to get your identity in all of these things and yet lose your very soul? Because all of those things can change, can be taken away. And so what he's doing is he's inviting you to not put your identity in those things, but to put your identity in him and in the gospel. Because when your identity is in him, when it's in the gospel, you become a child of God, and then no matter what happens to you in life, it can't be taken away. 
So when your spouse does die before you, you're still a child of God. When you lose your job, you're still a child of God. When suddenly you find yourself in a financial mess, you're still a child of God. When, when, when suddenly, you know, the, these health crises come your way, you're still a child of God. And even when you breathe your last breath, you're still a child of God. That's why Jesus is saying, don't put your identity in the things of this world. You need to deny yourself of those things and instead take up my cross, let that be what identifies you and that becomes the foundation of your life. So what that means is your identity. First and foremost, when someone says, who are you? It isn't your major. It isn't your job. It isn't your title. It isn't your family. It isn't how much money's in the bank. It isn't the type of car you drive or the type of music you listen to or the type of clothes you wear. It isn't your reputation. It isn't your addiction. It isn't those things that your parents said about you when you were a kid. It isn't the thing that that teacher or that adult did to you. Those things are not your identity. Your identity is to be in Jesus Christ alone. And that is what Jesus is inviting you to. All of us want to experience life. But Jesus is saying, those things, they're going to let you down. You're only going to find true life in me. Right, so maybe at this moment you're inspired. You're like, yes, that's what I want to do with my life. But then the natural question is, okay, but how? I mean, it's one thing to hear it said, but it's another to actually go and live this way. How in the world do you do this? All right, four things. First, you just got to take inventory. Like, be honest with yourself. I'd encourage you, ask yourself this question. What in my life, if taken away, would make me feel like I've lost my life? Like, is there a specific relationship that if you lost that relationship, you, feel, you would feel like my life's over? Is it maybe your job? Is it maybe, you know, like this addiction that you're, you're keeping hidden? Like, if suddenly that was taken from you, you'd feel like everything just crumbled. Is it maybe, you know, something from your past? What is it? Is there something in your life that if taken away would just make life crumble? Be honest with yourself. And then as you identify what that thing or things or people are, next thing to do is to pray, to surrender it. Jesus said to deny yourself. Like take those things and put them on your metaphorical cross. Let them be crucified and taken away so that these things can get purified. Now, some of these things you do need to get rid of. Right? But if you've turned your marriage into your ultimate, this does not mean you are down to get divorced, okay? It means you got to get a proper perspective. But for some of you, it might mean a change of job. If you've allowed your job to become the ultimate thing about you, you either need to have your perspective changed or you've got to say goodbye to the job. So take inventory and then pray. And then you've got to go and study this gospel. Jesus said, you've got to identify, you've got to lose your life for his sake and his gospel. So you've got to learn the gospel. You see, at Riverwood, we don't believe that the gospel is just merely the, the beginning of your Christian faith. Like, it's everything. As Tim Keller says, it's not the ABCs of the Christian faith, it's the A to Z. So if you want to become more like Jesus, you want to find this true life he's talking about, you've got to study the gospel deeper and more. And so that means you've got to get into the scriptures. 
If, if you don't know where to start, I'd say just start with Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, the first four books of the New Testament. They're called the Gospels for a reason. They show you the life of Jesus Christ. So study him. How does he live? How does he show love? Just pick a book. Some of you, you need another book to help you sort through it. So I, I've got three recommendations for you. Uh, the first one is uh, J.D. Greer's book, just simply called Gospel. This one's probably the easiest of my three recommendations to read. All right? J.D.'s great, uh, easy to read. He's funny at certain points. This one would be the easiest. But my wife's been, I, I've, I've already read it. My wife's been reading it. And she's like, I just feel like I, I need to start this over again. Like she keeps stopping going, whoa. All right? So I, I'd recommend that. Uh, another one, the smallest of these three recommendations is What is the Gospel by Greg Gilbert. So if you're scared of thicker books, by the way, gospel's not that big. But if you like little books, What is the Gospel's your choice. And, and then, if you want probably the most helpful of these that helps you see how does this come out in life, get uh, The Gospel in Real Life by Jerry Bridges. Uh, he's going to just help you see, here's what the gospel is, and here's how this affects the way you do marriage, or the way you, you do your job, or the way you, you know, approach you know, finances. He, he's going to help you apply the gospel into your everyday life. But then, I'd also recommend, outside of the scriptures, and maybe reading another book, maybe you know, finding a, a good podcast that goes deeper on these things, I, I would recommend get into a growth group. Now, at Riverwood, it doesn't have to just be our, you know, evening groups, although those are great options. Each of our groups gets into the scriptures. Uh, right now, our Thursday group's studying Ephesians. Uh, the, the Monday group, uh, we're restarting finally. So those of you who are in our Monday group, yes, we are restarting. Uh, and uh, just talking with Randy, we're probably going to do the book of Titus. All right? We're going to dive into the scriptures and, and see what does it mean to follow Jesus. Because the more we begin to study this gospel, the easier it is for us to naturally deny ourselves to take up our cross and follow him. But if these don't work for you, th then what you do is you just find another friend and say, hey, let's, let's get together and we'll just read the scriptures together. What does this mean and how does this then affect the way I live? Right? This is not complicated. It, it, half an hour per week, find someone, get together with them, and then just begin to read. Do this. Help yourself learn and study the gospel. It will make it easier to deny yourself and take up your cross. But then the fourth thing I would recommend is just to be patient with yourself. Give yourself some grace. God, for whatever reason, tends to not just change you instantly. All right? He is not going to microwave you into the image of Jesus. He's going to slow cook you. He's going to let you simmer. Every once in a while, someone will actually, uh, uh, you know, God will just do something miraculously in them. But for the large, large, large majority of us, it's going to take time. And so you're going to mess up. You're going to try to go back and, and take the things of this life and make that your identity again. This is going to be a process. So you have got to forgive yourself on those moments and then say, God, help me to deny myself and to take up my cross and follow you. Jesus Christ is the king, the Christ, the anointed one, the greatest one of all time. And he invites you to do what he has done. He died for us because we could not pay the cost ourselves, And now he asks you to give up yourself to follow him. You live in a world that tries to tell you your greatest joy is going to be found in these things. But don't fall for the lie. Don't put your identity in the things of this world. Instead, let it be on Jesus and his gospel because that is where you will find true life. And as you find that true life, now you will begin to resonate and be a blessing because it will not be about what you can get from this life and others. It's now what can you give 
This world needs you guys. But it needs you healthy. And that health is going to be found in Jesus and Jesus alone. So that's why we're going to just spend some time in communion and in prayer. I know, Jake, you were going to set this up. I'll just go ahead and set it up. You guys, we just need to spend some time with Christ. We just need to spend some time with the Holy Spirit. So the ushers are going to pass around the elements, and we're going to take those elements at any time during this next song as Hope Overflow leads. Uh, you can open that up and take it. But as you do, if there's something the Holy Spirit's revealed to you, this is your life, not me, before you take those elements, confess it. Give it over to God. This is your time to deal with Him. Let's let this be a holy moment. Let us right now deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow Him. If you are not a follower of Jesus, I'm just going to ask you to very respectfully not take these elements. Not because we're trying to deny something from you, it's because we have something far more important for you. We want you to be a follower of Jesus. And so you need to take this time right now to pray, to just confess your sin over to God and say, Jesus, you gave your life for me. I now want to give my life to you. This is the beginning of you taking up your cross and following him. But those of you who are already Jesus followers, this is your time to just deal, to let God minister to you, to, for you to confess your sin, for you to, to say, Jesus, I want you at the center of who I am. And so as you, if you're in person with us, as you take off that top, that is the bread, the body of Christ, which was broken for you. As you take that next layer and you drink that juice, that is his blood, which was shed for the forgiveness of your sins. As you take that into you, you need to remember, that means you're taking his story and bringing it into yourself. So no matter where you're at in your faith, if you're brand new at this, if you've been following Jesus for a long time, what is God saying to you right now? What do you need to give up so that you could take that which is better? What will it profit you to gain the whole world but lose your own soul? Whereas Jesus gave up his life so that you could find life. So let's do this now in remembrance of him. And then hope overflow whenever you're ready. You guys can come up and lead us in the song.